0: Hey, Church. This morning we are on the home stretch in this part of the um, It's Hope series, and hasn't it been great? It's been really, really great. And can I just say, um, you gotta love Craig and the text, the portion of scriptures that he's given Rob and I to speak on while he's away. He gives them to us, and then he says, "Like, see ya. I'm going hunting." When I looked at these passages. And I looked up what they were. I literally let out a scream. I was like, ah, sexual immorality, death, and end times. What? What? Okay. So on that note, let's pray. Because we're going to need it. We're going to need it. Oh, God, you are so faithful. And every promise you've ever given is yes and amen in you. And so, God, this morning, this morning, oh, God, Crack us wide open and help us to be intentional to lean into what it is that you're saying to us this morning. So God, and I pray, like the sign says, as people are driven in this morning, where new hope is born. God, would you do that in us this morning? Do it in us, God. Renew our hope. We love and we thank you so, God, pour your spirit out afresh, and have your way, have your way, have your way. And all of God's people said, amen. Okay, so the last time I spoke on a Sunday morning, I gave an American football analogy. But now, it's a basketball analogy. Because in the USA, it is March Madness in the college uni basketball world. Super exciting. March Madness is the final tournament where the top 64 teams in the country uh, and the nation play off against each other. That during this tournament, those 64 teams get whittled down to 32, and those 32 teams get whittled down to the Sweet 16, which is happening this weekend. And that Sweet 16 gets whittled down to the Elite 8, and then the Final 4 and then the last two teams standing in that final championship game. It is super exciting and even Kyle, our new exec pastor who's a fellow American, is right into it, so it's just not me. And we have bonded over the whole basketball thing. But what I find so fascinating during this whole process are the interviews with these young players before and after the game. And it's a familiar refrain. They all seem to talk about that, how they start the basketball season, they all start it with this final tournament in mind. Their goal is to train and play at their very best during the whole season so they can play with the best in that final championship game. I love that. I love that a contemplation of the end totally transforms how they train and play in every single game now. Now I tell you that. Well, we are, in this, um, we are in this portion of the letter to the Thessalonians, and what we're gonna look at is a contemplation of the end. Paul is going to take our end, and the end, capital T, capital E, and he's gonna put those two together. Yay, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? I don't know about you, but contemplating my end or contemplating death in general is something I don't like thinking about, I don't like talking about, I don't like watching movies about it, or even TV commercials. Don't like it. Maybe it stems from the bedtime prayer my mom would pray over us kids when we were little. Maybe you've heard it. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray to God my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray to God my soul to take. What? You mean I might not wake up? I mean, who prays that over little children? It's no wonder why me and my little brothers would pile and jump on her bed at night and ask to sleep with the light on. Just a side note. This prayer reminds me of a story I heard about a chaplain who was leading a chapel service for a football team. And I thought, oh, I just gotta share that with you guys. The chaplain asked one of the players, nicknamed The Fridge, because he was built like one, to lead them in the Lord's Prayer. Now the quarterback of the team thought this was hilarious and he whispers to the chaplain and he said, I will bet you 50 bucks that there's no way the fridge knows the Lord's Prayer. Um, There's no way. And the chaplain thought this was kind of a weird thing to say, but he just kind of goes with it. That everybody bows their heads and closes their eyes, and the fridge begins to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray to God my soul to keep... The quarterback takes the 50 bucks out of his pocket, and he hands it over to the chapel, and he says, I was so, I was so sure he didn't know the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> so good, eh? That's so good. Now, these passages that we're going to be reading together this morning are probably the most well-known in this whole letter from the Apostle Paul. But notice, I didn't say that they were the best understood passages, <laughs> and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. But in these five verses in First Thessalonians 4, which is really part one, with the second part being next week as Rob covers chapter five. Good luck with that, Rob, wherever you are. In these passages, we are going to see that a contemplation of our end and the end need not be a source of despair but rather a source of hope. Now the Apostle Paul has has his church care pastor hat on as he talks and encourages this beloved church. He's been hearing reports by Timothy of how well they had been doing in so many areas, but there are a few issues and there are some pressing questions that they have. The most pressing question and confusion that Thessalonians had were about how they should feel And how they should think about Christians dying because they had lost some people in their church community. Now these deaths rocked their world because it seemed to contradict the things they thought Paul had told them about God's plan for their lives. Can anybody relate? The death of people we love or know has a way of doing that. All of us know, especially now how painful grief and loss can be, and how it can shake us to the core. These deaths seem to be especially confusing to the Thessalonians because they literally thought Jesus was coming back like any minute now. Any minute now. One commentator said that the Thessalonians thought the return of Jesus was immediate, like right now, and not imminent. Imminent means that it could happen at any moment. who here knows that God's timing and our timing ain't the same timing? Ain't the same timing. The most important thing to remember here isn't when it's going to happen, but that it is going to happen. For the Thessalonians, while waiting for Jesus to return, started to die. And it started to confuse, grieve, and panic them as they wondered if their loved ones who had died would miss out on Jesus' second coming, that they would miss out on his return. Now, this is where FOMO, the fear of missing out, started right here. So Paul is going to address this issue, this pressing question. And it says in verse 13, and I will read the whole passage from 13 to 18 as a whole, and then we'll go back and um, walk through it. But he says this. He says, Now we don't want you to be ign- uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. For we tell you this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, Who are left until the coming of the Lord will surely not go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Amazing passage. So, Paul starts off by saying, now we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. In other words, what Paul is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. Don't settle for ignorance, brothers and sisters. Don't settle to not think about it. There is something I want you to know, and the reason he gives is so that you don't grieve like those who have no hope. Now that wording, so that, indicates a result. He says, I want you to know something with the result that when you know it, it will result in you being different. When you understand the knowledge I'm about to give you, and you grab it, and you lean into it, and you absorb it, you will no longer grieve like everyone else who has no hope. Now let's be clear, what Paul is not saying is don't grieve. No, he's acknowledging that Christians grieve. The Bible does not give us a stoic approach to death, not at all. I mean, take Job, for example. When he lost his five children, he tore his clothes, shaved his head, threw dust on himself, fell to the ground, and cried out. And it says that in all these things, Job did not sin. I mean, Jesus himself wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, even though he knew he would raise him from the dead. And when Jesus saw Mary and Martha, he did not say, oh, there, there, girls. Don't cry. Have a stiff upper lip. No. Jesus weeps with them. You know, in our English translations, it says that Jesus not only wept, but that he was also greatly troubled. But in the Greek... The Greek translation, it says that Jesus wept and was quaking with rage. He's crying and angry. Why? Why is Jesus crying and angry? Jesus knows that death is an enemy, an intruder. Death was not in the original design. When God created mankind, we were never meant to experience death. We were never meant to die. We were meant to flourish and last. And what Paul is trying to get the Thessalonians to understand and not to be ignorant about is that for the Christ follower, our grief, as painful as it is, is shot through with hope. And one of the main reasons Christianity grew so rapidly in those early centuries, the first, second, and third centuries, and what the Roman culture culture marveled at was at the confidence the christians held and had as they faced their impending death it confused the ancient world to see such confidence and joy in the face of their end the christian perspective of death is so radically different and hope-filled that it enthralled and drew them what do you have that you can be that way What's so interesting is that when John Wesley, a famous theologian, was coming to America in the 1700s, he was, on, he was coming as a minister, even though he wasn't a Christian at the time. His ministry didn't go very well. He was on a ship that was about to be shipwrecked, and he thought he was going to die. And so as the supposed chaplain of this ship that looked like that it was about to go down, he and everyone else started freaking out. But then then John Wesley saw a group of Moravians, devout Christ followers, who were holding hands and who were singing and worshiping in the face of death. And John Wesley didn't get it. He thought they looked crazy. But it was an attractive kind of crazy. And he wanted to know more about it. And I think we do too. You see, we have a hope that is not just wishful thinking. It is a competent expectation because we know that death is not the end for us. And what contemplation of the end gave the Christian hope? Is it that we're to sleep? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. Is it because people who don't know Jesus die, but the Christian just sleeps? That is not really what Paul is getting at here. You see, in the ancient world, the word sleep was used as imagery for death by Christians and non-Christians. In the pagan culture, it was very common to call death sleep. Homer in the Iliad talks about a soldier who died, and it says that he slept the sleep of bronze. And so for the Christ follower to call death sleep was not uniquely Christian. But what is uniquely Christian in this passage is that this sleep... This sleep is something we get to rise from. That's what's so radically different. He says, we grieve, but not as those who don't have hope. And hope, biblically, is confident expectation. I have confidence in something I'm expecting. And what is so radically different to the way we approach death to the rest of the world is this. We approach it with confidence and expectancy. You see, for the rest of the world back then, they did not have that. The ancient poet Theocritus said, Hopes are for the living. The dead are without hope. Another ancient poet, um, Catullus, said, The sun can rise and set again, but once our brief life sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. The culture back then had no hope in the face of death. They say that when you die, it's over. That's it. It's the setting of the sun and it will never rise again. But the Christian, for the Christ follower, says not us. Not for us. So we grieve when we lose those we love. And we grieve when people die in senseless, horrible tragedies. And it's right to grieve. But for the Christ follower, our grief is shot through with hope. And why are we hopeful? What do we have hope in? Why can we be this way? Why are we not meant to fear death? Paul tells us in the next verse. And he says this. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. How can we have hope? Because our guy Jesus beat death We can have hope in the face of death because of who we have hitched ourselves to, who we have aligned ourselves to, who we have put our trust and faith in. Jesus beat death. That is what the if is in this verse. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, we believe that we'll die and rise again. Death is not the end for us either. Jesus beat it, so we beat it. He rose, and so will we. And the basis and the grounds of our confidence, our hope in the face of death, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I believe this. I have confidence in this, because it has happened already. I saw it. Jesus died and didn't stay dead, and neither will we. Church, it's important for us to understand this basis for this reason. And this is really big in our culture at the moment. Oftentimes you will hear people who mock Christianity or have an atheistic perspective who will say that the way the Christian faith came up with an afterlife is because it sprung forth from the basis of wishful thinking. That you were scared of death, and so you conjured up an idea to comfort you in the face of it. It's just wishful thinking. Now, there was a movie that came out about 10 years ago by Ricky Gervais. Now, he's a comedian and an actor from the UK. He's really funny, and he did that whole series called The Office. Like, he's really funny. But in 2009, he came out with the movie called The Invention of Lying. Now, the movie is about a world where no one can lie. But Ricky's character suddenly develops the ability to tell lies. Now, the big lie of the whole movie that he perpetuates is that there is an afterlife. And the way he does it is not mean or cruel. He's sitting at his mother's bedside, his, her deathbed, and she is scared as she faces death and fears that there is nothingness after death. Now, is in his attempt to comfort her, He lies and makes up what life is like after death. He says the big lie is that there is something after the grave. And he is quoted in an interview as saying, I've been an atheist all my life, but I always knew that if my mom asked me when she was dying if there was a heaven, I'd say yes. I'd lie. I think that's how religion started, as a good lie. Now, he's just released another series on Netflix called Afterlife. And you know, for an atheist, he sure seems to think a lot about it. He does. I mean, has anybody seen it? The taglines Netflix have given this trailer should be a clue on what it's about. And no jokes, it says this. The tags are black comedy, grief, cynical. And I'll give it one more. Hopeless. It is one of the most depressing series I have ever, ever watched. He is grieving the loss of his wife to cancer, but it's a grief that is so incredibly sad and utterly hopeless. Yes, there's some funny moments in there, but my goodness, it's so, so sad. And the end conclusion is that this life is all there is, so he might as well just try and be a little kinder to his friends because he's horrible and try and eke out some happiness by maybe starting to date again. That's it. That end. It was so sad and depressing that I was left with only a couple options. One, turn off Netflix. <laughs> and the second was pray for the salvation of Ricky Gervais. He's obviously searching, but I was so sad for him. Because I think it's a window into his thought life, what he's thinking about. And here's the thing. If Ricky's right about the basis, then he would be right about the conclusion. If our only reason for believing that there is something after death is because we wish there was or we hope there was, then we would be, as Paul says, most to be pitied. And he puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. This is profound. He says, but tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. If we, and we apostles would be all lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty in your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Here's the truth, church. And let this sink down deep. Our basis for the hope that we have in Christ is not just wishful thinking. Our basis in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical precedent. The resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, and it changed, and it changes everything. I mean, how do you explain us? (laughs) We confound the world now and back then. How do you explain a group of Jewish Christ followers who were willing to die when Caesar wanted to put his emblem in front of the temple and they were like, no, you won't. They willfully died because they refused to worship Caesar. And within a very short space of time, Christianity exploded as people who were not expecting a resurrection saw the risen Christ by the hundreds, Acts tells us. Jesus hung out with people and he ate fish with people These Christ followers were willing to die for this God, man, Jesus, and the Christian church was born and it spread through millennia. This historical fact radically, radically changed the world and we could spend hours talking about it. We could. But instead, can I encourage you to come to the Experience Easter production here in just a few weeks and invite some people. Bring a friend with you. Maybe those that don't know Jesus, And let your hearts marvel afresh at the scandalous grace of the God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, who so loved the world that he sent his only beloved son, that whosoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. That is what Paul is trying to reassure the Thessalonians of. If Jesus died and rose again, then so will we. And not only that, when he comes back, Those who have died are coming back with him. And how can we be so sure of that? Paul says in the next verse, he says this. For we tell you this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will surely not go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. How can we be so sure that this is going to happen? Because the Lord told us it would. Jesus said in Matthew 24, and he's telling this to the apostles, and they're sad because Jesus has been talking about his death, but he encourages them with this, with the next words. He says this. He says, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. There's going to come a moment When Jesus comes back to get us, and not only us, but those who have died before us. And verse 16 says this. Look at how similar it is. He says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I love that. I love that God is personally going to show up, and those loved ones who have died in Christ, our loved ones, will get a front row seat to it all. They won't miss a thing. There's no FOMO here. They will rise first, and then Jesus will come for those of us that are still alive at his appearing and pull us all together. Notice that the point that Paul is not addressing here is what happens to us when we die. What I just want to say about this is that he's addressed that in other passages Paul has. And just to reassure you, those who have died in Christ are not in some catatonic state of existence. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says this. He says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we're at home with the Lord when we're not in our bodies. And in Philippians 1, Paul says this. He says, for me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross that today... Today you will be with me in paradise. Those who have died in Christ, their spirits are with him right now. Death does not have the final word. Our hope and our comfort is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the rest of those verses, Paul says this in First Thessalonians. And he says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort each other with these words. Remember, the Thessalonians' question wasn't, where are our dead friends? This this is what the Thessalonians longed to see. They were waiting for this day, the day when the sky rips open and Jesus comes back, and we will be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. Now, that word caught up is where we get the word rapture from. Now, much ink has been spent on this word and end times events and lots and lots of charts. But that's not the point of the passage. And all I'm going to say about it, in the best way I know how to think about it, is this. Because there's so many schools of thought. Jesus will either come back with us or he will come back for us, period. Either way, we get Jesus. (laughs) That's it. Now that wording, meet the Lord, In the air is a set word that means that when a dignitary or a king was coming, the people would all go out to to the city um, to welcome him into the city. And just like Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem, the people went out to the edge of the city to welcome him and usher him in by waving palm branches we will all get to meet Jesus in the air and usher back Jesus down to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus comes back to earth to redeem it and to fix all this, to redeem all that is broken, to redeem and fix the curse as far as it is found. If I could have the band come out now. The Thessalonians longed, longed for this day. And I love how in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Christians are called people who love his appearing. That's what they're called, people who love his appearing. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? Does that describe you? Is that something you can write on your resume? Yeah, I'm good at this, I'm good at that, and oh, I love his appearing. (laughs) Are we people who long for his coming, who love and long for his appearing? Hebrews 9:28 says, "So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, but not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him." Does that describe us? Does a contemplation of our end and the end fill us with hope? I know I want that. I want that. I have so needed to be reminded and challenged as I have contemplated the end, my end, and where my hopes really lie. You see, as I lay me down to sleep, and I pray to God my soul to keep, that if I should die before I wake, what I know for sure is that I get to be with him. The good news of the gospel church is this right there. That's the good news of the gospel. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope we have is a living hope, a living, breathing hope who is coming back. Please stand to your feet as we close. As we worship our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. See, this whole book ends, your Bible ends with the last words of Jesus in Revelation 22. Now I'm going to put it up and I'll read the first part, but that last sentence I want you to read all together. And I want you to read it like you've got some hope filled in you. Amen? <sighs> He says this, Jesus says, he who is faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming again soon. And all of God's people said, amen. Come Lord Jesus. Yes, Lord. We say that to you. Maranatha, come. We eagerly wait your coming. We want to be people who love your appealing God. Fill us with your hope. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Hallelujah and amen. Let us worship our God. Amen.